0: Welcome to Heartland Church. It is our prayer that as you listen to the following message, you would experience the heart of God for your life. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us on the web at heartlandchurchonline.com. Now, let's join this week's service already in progress. talked about the relationship between the Ecclesia and the Basilea. In the New Testament, the term, the Greek term translated kingdom is Basilia, the kingdom of God. That was the message of Jesus. Jesus only mentioned the word church or Ecclesia twice, but he preached on the Basilia a lot. The, the, uh, now the apostles talked more about the church and not as much about the Ecclesia, but Jesus laid the foundation of the kingdom. And then the apostles talked about the church, which was the avenue by which we advanced the kingdom. And so we talked about the relationship between those two words. And uh, we talked about how the Ecclesia without the basileia, or the kingdom without the church is like an embassy without a nation. It may have a nice building, but it 's got no authority it 's got no power and it 's got no one to represent and For too long in the church, we have equated the church with the kingdom in the sense that we 've made them synonymous I was, I was trained in ministry in Bible school that th- these two terms were synonymous that the church was the kingdom and the kingdom was the church and The fact is that is untrue that is that is not true it's the kingdom is so much larger than the church i love the way my spiritual father jack taylor puts it he says all of the church is in the kingdom but not all the kingdom is in the church the church is merely a subsidiary of the kingdom and that is important for us to understand because there is so much more to what god is doing the church is the training ground the church is the kingdom colony of the kingdom in this world. The Roman people, the Roman, uh, you could make a strong argument that when scripture says that Jesus came in the fullness of time. You can make a strong argument for one expression of time being fulfilled or things being ripe for Jesus coming, because when it says the fullness of time, it's not talking about a date on the calendar. Uh, in God's economy, it's talking about God's purposes coming to fulfillment. And so, in, in God's economy, what God does is He releases a fresh age or a fresh eon or a fresh time through revelation. The fullness of that revelation then transitions us into the next age. And so God is moving on. He's moving things forward through revelation and the stewardship of that revelation. So it's important when God releases something into your life, a new insight, a new revelation, whether it's as an individual or as a corporate people, that we steward those well because we're, there's a purpose for everything that God shows us. And we bring that into the fullness, into the full intention that God had for releasing that. And that transitions us into the next stage of God's purposes. I know if that made sense or not. But it's a very important for us to understand. Hallelujah. Good. Because you're just looking at me. I need some engagement here. So uh, we're going we're gonna to get some people just to wave some hankies you know, and say, Woo, preach it, Pastor. You ever preached in a place where they say, preach it, preach it? Man, it makes you feel like, I'm trying, I'm trying. So anyway, the, the, the Scripture says in Galatians chapter 4, I believe it was verse 6, that Christ came in the fullness of time. It's a fascinating passage. Because it begs the question, why, Lord, with the fall in Genesis, did you wait several thousand years to send the answer to the problem. Why didn't you send him the next day? Why didn't you release Jesus into the earth the next generation? Why did it go? Because there were things that God had in his heart, there were things that had to be fulfilled. The stage had to be set to release the answer upon. And I can make a strong argument historically for what the Roman people established. For the kingdom to be released. For one thing, they had a common language. The Roman people, and really, uh, Alexander the Great established the foundation of this, and Rome took it further. So Alexander the Great and the great Grecian Empire, he came and he, he imposed the Grecian language on the then known world. So now there was a common language by which the scriptures could be written and spread quickly. And so we had this Grecian language, Greek is one of the most expressive, exact languages that has ever existed. Whereas in English we say, I love my wife and I love pizza, and then I wonder why she doesn't get excited when I say I love you. In Greek there's many different words for love, and then there's prefixes and suffixes, and there's the order in which that word is in the sentence, which really brings it to bear and really brings the point home. And so God established the English language. He had the Roman people subject the then known world under Roman rule or Pax Romana. And then what they did is they paved roads all over the then known world so there could be quick travel. And the Roman kingdom, as a citizen of Rome, you had tremendous personal rights. You had guaranteed rights. Now, if you weren't a Roman citizen, you were a little more than, you know, a, a... Something that was owned, but you, if you were a Roman citizen, you had great rights. And so God raised up the Apostle Paul as a Roman citizen who could travel on these roads and spoke the Grecian language. And he was schooled in, in Hebrew and he could, he could spread the gospel quickly. And it was in the fullness of time that God brought forth His Son. So there's these, these types of things. But another aspect that Rome brought to the table was the form of government that Rome established. And again, it was precipitated by the Grecian Empire. They were brilliant in their military strategy and their governing strategies. But I'm telling you, Rome built upon that and took what the Grecians did and put it on steroids. And they established a form of government that was perfect to communicate what the kingdom of God was. Now, I'm not saying that Rome was perfect by any means. They had some psychopaths as... Caesar but they did they were the emperor they were known as the king of kings and they would delegate partial kingdoms they would delegate subservient kingdoms under their empire to men and they would rule for them and it's a picture of what God does for us and there's there's a whole lot to do with it but one of the aspects of the Roman kingdom that was fascinating they were the first kingdom to ever colonize and not in, in, in the past, what had happened, uh, you look at Persia and Babylon and all these other kingdoms, you see it all throughout the Old Testament, and for that fact, all throughout ancient history, Rome changed the strategy. But prior to Rome, they would go and they would conquer a kingdom, they would kill all the, the warriors, and then they would subject the other healthy males and females and children, and they would haul them back to the conquering kingdom and subject them into servitude. So they would take you out of the land in which you were raised and they would conquer you. They would strip you of your rights, strip you of your culture and take you back to the conquering kingdom and then you would become Babylonian or Chaldean or whatever, Persian, and you'd have to serve under them. Rome didn't do that. Rome would come in with their tremendous military might and conquer these, conquer these nations and then they would set up Rome in the conquered kingdom. They wouldn't take you back to Rome. They would take Rome to you. And they would Romanize that place that they conquered. And as we've talked before, one of the primary strategies of both Greece and then even more so of Rome was the installation of a general called an apostolos, what we translate apostle. And his job was to reculturize that nation so that that city kingdom, that nation, that area would begin to look like Rome. So that if the emperor were to visit, it would feel like Rome. And so in a very real sense, they could, they could say, our job is to make it in your hometown as it is in Rome. Or as Jesus taught us to pray, on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I want to stop there. I want us to think about that prayer on earth as it is in heaven. Did Jesus really mean for us to pray that prayer? Was that just a nice little prayer that he told us, you know, pray this, but I don't really mean it. I don't intend to answer it. Did he intend for us to not only pray it with our breath, but invest our lives in seeing that established? I would think so. I don't think Jesus ever prayed an insincere prayer, and I don't think he ever taught his disciples to pray a prayer that they should believe and contend for and invest their life, throw their life into the establishment of the answer of that prayer. We're to become the answer to our own prayer. Now, I want to preface, because there's different theological thoughts that have come down through the pike, and so there's some that have taken that idea and pushed it into what is known as dominion theology. And some people don't understand what that word means. There is the, the kingdom now theology. The kingdom is now. But some have taken that to mean that we are literally going to set the kingdom of God up on earth and that Christians will rule over everything. And we're going to make this a paradise to which Jesus will come back. And he's re- there's not really going to be any change when he arrives other than he's going to be present physically because we've made heaven on earth that is not what the bible teaches but what the bible does teach is that we are to not only disciple individuals and see their characters transformed so they become expressions of god that they made in the image of god and so that people could say what is god like well look at those believers you'll get a very good idea look at that guy look at that gal she got saved last year and she acts a lot like jesus We're to to disciple people, to act like God. We're also to disciple cultures. Because Jesus not only said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creatures, He also said, go and... Preach the gospel to all nations, or ethnos, or ethne. The Greek word is really people groups. He's not talking about just addressing individuals. It's very clear in the Greek. He's talking about addressing groups of people. So when you're addressing an individual, you're addressing their culture. Bring your individual personal behavior up to the standard of godly character. But when we're addressing people groups, we're talking about our corporate behavior, which is Culture, And we're saying, let's let our interaction, what happens between us, live up to the standard of God. And in that way, we see on earth as it is in heaven. And if we just stop at character and never go into culture, we will not accomplish the Great Commission as Jesus stated it. So we're not talking about producing paradise, but we are talking about not surrendering this world to darkness, but we are down here to see the light of the gospel not only transform individuals, but transform environments. Jesus really is concerned. I, I, matter of fact, I would go as far as to say the United States of America has been one of the grandest experiments of taking the Bible and seeing it as established in a culture. It is, it is the closest form of godly government we've ever seen and take disseminating the principles of God's scripture and then evaluating how can we form a government that matches the scripture. And it's not a coincidence. It's not just, oh, isn't that interesting? That the early Congress used to debate Scripture. You know, they used to stand up in Congress while they're they're discussing legislation. One would stand up and say, but wait a minute, in my quiet time this morning, I was reading in Deuteronomy chapter 5 and it said this. And another one would say, but yeah, but what about Exodus such and such? They were arguing the Scripture to determine our laws. If you study... The, the, the most quoted book, or set of books, in our, our, our laws, our early laws, it was Blackstone's commentaries on the Decalogue, on the, the, the Pentateuch. The second most was the Bible. They were, co- they were quoting commentaries and the Scripture. It's not a coincidence that we as a nation have enjoyed tremendous prosperity, tremendous freedom, and have also become a beacon of freedom for the rest of the world. And in this day and age where we, have, we are being taught by many to be ashamed of our heritage because all they do is highlight the dark spots of our heritage, and there are some, and we need to own that. But the fact is, we have also been a nation that have been willing to own that, pass legislation, and deal with these matters. It's not a coincidence, the tremendous prosperity, the tremendous freedom, and the tremendous freedom. We, we, were the, we have been the only nation in the world that has fought wars to liberate other countries that we fight a war and rather than subject them to our servitude we rebuild that nation so they can once again be free it's it's an anomaly in all of human history those things are not coincidences it's like wow isn't that interesting they built it on scripture and there's a lot of good results wasn't that weird no it's not this this is the result of this So how we got into that, I don't know. But anyway, it's true. It's good preaching. Hallelujah. So what we need to realize, Rome had these colonies, the colonization. They would go in and they would begin to disciple the communities, the villages, the cities, the nations, the people groups. And so Jesus came on the scene and he said, I will build my ecclesia. An ecclesia was a group of citizens under Rome. And it was under, the Greeks again established this concept. The Romans pushed it farther. And they would gather and they would legislate what was going to happen. They would discuss and they would come together. How are we going to carry out the wishes of the emperor? How are we going to establish this? How are we going to function as a city? And Jesus chose that term rather than synagogue rather than temple, rather than some other religious terms that he could have, he said, I will establish my ecclesia, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church, the ecclesia of God, is really the colony of heaven in a given location. We are heaven's representatives. In one sense, we're an an embassy of the kingdom. We are here to represent our king and to begin to infiltrate as servants, not to lord over, but to serve under and become the leaven of the kingdom and influence by wisdom, power, and love, and see the gospel begin to bear fruit in the individual's life and in the life of that city culture. So that is the ecclesia. Now, I touched on this a couple weeks ago, and I wasn't clear. I didn't get into it because there's so many things I was talking about. But I talked about how the, where this word church, which was the I want to say it was the old English word kirk, uh, where where that began to get traction, and it was no longer being translated as the ecclesia. Because the ecclesia, matter of fact, it was. Uh, I mentioned this a while, uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, my mind is blank. But anyways, he was was the original English translator, and he he translated it assembly. And that really is a good translation, Uh, the the assembly of people. But they're assembled for a purpose to execute, uh, to to determine and execute the the wishes of the people and the kingdom. Uh, The reason it was no longer translated that way was because under King James, King James wanted to... He wanted to centralize all the power in himself. And so he was not only the King of England, he was the, the leader of the Anglican Church. And so he said, We're going, and he, he broke off of the. Uh, well, he, anyway, he's, he was a leader of the Anglican Church. And because that would send the wrong message for the form of government he wanted, he said, Translate it, church. And so it, it's gotten traction and it's really lost its impact. And so we need to understand what the ecclesia is it is the gathering of the saints. For the purposes of the kingdom. Now there are several purposes for our gathering. There is equipping so that we can learn. We become enlightened about kingdom ideals and we come out and we become the ecclesy of God outside these walls. But one of the main meanings of this word demands that we realize the centrality of intercession and prayer to our existence. When we talk about being the church, the ecclesy of God... One of the central focuses is that we receive revelation from God and we legislate through intercession and proclamation. We begin to exert the will of our Father into the environment. And so we, we pray that His kingdom would come and His will would be done. We need to understand, when we come together, there is kingdom authority that is established by our gathering. That is why when Jesus said, Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. There's, there's something of Himself He'll commit to the two that He won't commit to the one. You can never be the church as one. You can't say, I am the church. No, you're not. There's never a me, the church. There's a we, the church. You can be a believer, but you can't be the church because it demands that we come together. That's why Ephesians chapter 1 says, The church, comma, the body, the church, his body, comma the fullness of him. The church, the ecclesia, is his body. Many members. It takes at least two. And then it says, the fullness. You can never touch the fullness of God alone. I don't care what kind of encounters you've had, you can go to heaven every other day and encounters and you can be translated and and see visions and, and all that's great. Hey, I believe in that stuff. You can have angelic visitations every morning if you do pray for me. I want you to pray for me. But that you still don't have the fullness until you step into a relationship with another believer. Because God only commits his fullness to the church. So this thing about people saying, well, I am the church and I don't need to go to church. Yeah, I understand the word church doesn't mean a place you go, but it does mean a place. It means a gathering. You can do that under a tree. I don't have a problem with house churches. If you are availing yourself to the gifts in the body of Christ... Because he did set apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry that they would all grow up and become mature and that we would break into what? The fullness of him, he says in Ephesians 4. And so that's fine. If you have a home cell group, you know, you're, that's your church, that's fine. As long as you are in some form or fashion exposing yourself to these governing, equipping gifts in the body of Christ. So if you're connected to a larger movement, hey, I don't have a problem with that. I think you'd have a hard time finding a scripture against that. But what I do have a problem with, because of what the word says, is a person, because they've been wounded, not going to church anywhere and saying, I am the church. It's me and Jesus. I don't need other people. Good luck with that. How's that working out for you? Because all you have is your little limited perspective. It's like the little boy who heard there was a a parade coming by and there's a little hole in the fence. He couldn't see over the fence, so he looked through the hole and he's watching the parade and his mom said, did you see the parade? He said, yeah. She said, what did it look like? He said, a parade's an elephant. That's all he could see. All he saw was part and he came to the wrong conclusions. We need the perspective of others to be tied in. So, it's important for us to understand that when you get saved... Your faith is to bring you into two experiences. Number one, an individual or what we call a personal relationship with God. I wouldn't trade that for anything. That is awesome. He is my best friend. When he accepted me back, I was ruined for life. From the moment his manifest presence came into the room... I was ruined and I've never recovered. It's been over 30 years, 35 years, almost 35 years now. I've never recovered from that. That was my personal relationship with Jesus. But that invasion of His presence into my life was also to introduce me into a corporate relationship with Jesus. So, we need to ask ourselves, How's your personal relationship with God? Are you staying up to date on your relationship? When's the last time you hung out with Jesus? When's the last time you spent some time together and you let him whisper things to your ear and minister to your heart and he began to tell you who you are and who he is and you had that fellowship so you went out strengthened. That is so very important. My son Noah, he's down in Medellin and. at at ywam and he wrote roger he said i'm I'm realizing how important this devotional time is i'm thinking yes glory that was worth the investment right there that every morning we get up early and we you know we get spend time with jesus yes we need to learn what is you know we need to guard our personal relationship with god but equally important yes i said equally equally important is your corporate relationship with God. How is your corporate relationship with Jesus? When's the last time you hung out with some saints and you bore your soul and you shared what's really going on in your life and you opened yourself up to some counsel? And you went out of your way to help some other people. I was in Panama. Every time I go, something happens with my house, you know. And this time a faucet started leaking, and our wood floor began to buckle, and Adrian Meyer starts heading over my house to help my wife. Now, I don't know if you've seen the video of Adrian's basement. I've watched it dozens of times. You see this picture of all this water and all this debris floating in this room, but you can't tell what it is, and all of a sudden, Adrian comes bobbing around the corner up to, hey, this is my basement, and he's laughing. I'm thinking, he's laughing. That wasn't a momentary thing. I watched these guys just walk this out with such character. And here, I mean, he had to gut down to the two-by-fours. I mean, they had a fully finished, they had an apartment down there. It was beautiful. Kitchen, living room, family, you know, uh, uh, bedroom, full bath, storage room. Years of accumulated stuff. Lost it all. And in the midst of dealing with this, he comes to my house to deal with a little buckled floor. It's the body of Christ. It's a beautiful thing. You see, there's something about the body that causes you to get out of you. So, I want to take us down a quick little journey. Oh my goodness. it's th- That clock's got to be wrong. here. I want, us, I want us to understand this thing about baptism, because baptism is very important. Next week, we're going to baptize. Is it next week, Laura? Next week, we're going to baptize the ones we were supposed to baptize the night the whole city got <laughs> baptized. Okay? <laughs> and uh, let's take that as a prophetic sign. Amen? Yes. Hallelujah. <laughs> baptism had there's... It's an interesting study. We're going to just burn through some things, okay? But it's important for us to understand. Ephesians chapter 4, where it talks about the fivefold ministry, he starts with this. He has a little phrase in there. He says, there is one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is in all and through all. And, And then he says, but to each of us, he has given a measure of the gift of Christ. So he's talking about the oneness. And then he begins to talk about how we each have a portion. And he's going to sum it up through the fivefold that the way we bring all our portions together so we can have the fullness. That's the whole message of Ephesians 4. But he makes a statement. There is one Lord, one faith. And he says, one baptism. One baptism. Hebrews 6 talks about the foundations of the faith. And it says, let us not lay again the foundations of the faith, uh, Repentance from acts that lead to death, faith in God, the laying on of hands, instructions in baptism. And that name's a couple more. Instructions in baptisms, plural. Now what's the deal with that? Paul talks about one baptism. The writer of Hebrews, whoever that is, I kind of think it's Apollos, but we don't know. He says instruction in baptisms, plural. Is that a contradiction? I believe it's two ways of looking at one truth. Because there is, there is really, you can look in the New Testament, there's five baptisms that you can see. You've got John's baptism in water, a baptism of repentance. You've got Christian baptism, where you're baptized into his death. That's also in water. You've got Jesus speaking of a baptism of suffering. Then you've got Jesus speaking of the baptism, or Paul talks about a baptism in the Spirit. And Jesus, or John the, uh, the Baptist talks about a baptism in fire as well. So there's, there's these different nuances. but from Paul's perspective, Paul sums all of these up as one baptism and you can look at them that way and you realize they're all at one little facet of the whole. What do I mean by that? What John began with his baptism of repentance, Christian baptism finishes. Because John could baptize you into uh, into repentance. You're saying, I'm done with the past. I own what I was. I I, I deserve a watery grave. I deserve to die. I'm going to embrace this death. And I'm going to put everything I used to be under the water. And I'm going to come up a new person. The problem is they they would forsake the old. But they had nothing to come to. Because Jesus had not yet provided a new life. John was paving the way for what Jesus would lead us into. So when Jesus died, he... Before he dies, he goes into the water because he said, I must fulfill all of righteousness. What does he do? He goes in the water. He goes down. He doesn't have a sinful past to say no to. But what does he have? He says, I am going to, in essence, he was saying, I am going to say no to the right to lead my own life. I'm only going to say what I hear the Father saying. I'm only going to do what I hear the father, see the Father doing. He goes down in the water. He comes up and immediately a dove descends upon him in bodily form. The heavens open and a voice speaks, You are my son in whom I'm well pleased. And immediately he was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested. So now he's come under the anointing. He's given up the right to rule his own life. He wasn't sinful, but he did have a self-life that he chose to say no to. He went in the water. And so we see in Jesus' baptism, down in the water, up in the Spirit. So we have this John's baptism. We have Christian baptism. And then Luke in Luke chapter three, John, the baptizer spoke of, he, he, he said, what I do with water, the one coming after me, Jesus, the, the guy who I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes, he's going to do what I do with water with the Holy ghost and fire. So he gives us these, these two expressions of baptism in that little phrase there. So he said that I put you down in the water. You're soaked. You're, you're immersed it, the, the, in the Greek, it's very clear immersion you're, you're saturated because it's a watery grave. When we die, we don't just sprinkle dirt. We bury him. And so we put the man under the water, we bring him up and it's, they're dripping saturated with water. And he's saying, this is a prophetic picture of what Jesus will do with the Holy ghost and fire. What a picture. Jesus wants to take you and the environment in which he will submerge you is the atmosphere of God himself. He baptizes you in the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of God. And you go down into him and you come up dripping, saturated with the Spirit of God. You're soaked. And with that, there's a baptism of fire. Now, we don't have time to get into this. But... There, you can make a strong case for that baptism of fire being the testing or the establishing of what he put in us and the stripping away of anything that would be contrary to it. When Jesus went down in the water, he came up in the Spirit. He had, John had just declared he's going to do with the Holy Ghost and fire. Jesus comes up, the Holy Spirit comes upon him, and he's driven into the wilderness. And that was Jesus' baptism of fire. God was going to burn up all the chaff, all that which was unusable. So how does this? What is, what is this picture? Well, in baptism, and this is very important for us to understand, in our relationship, our personal relationship with God and our corporate relationship with God, there's a baptism that applies to both. Your water baptism has to do with your personal relationship with God. But your spirit baptism has to do with your corporate relationship with God. And it's a facet of the baptism in the Holy Spirit we often don't talk about. And I want to show it to you this morning. So I've got 10 minutes. This Let's pray for grace. Water baptism, well, let me back up and put it this way. If you look at all of Scripture, let Scripture interpret Scripture... There's a hermeneutical law. Hermeneutics is the science of biblical interpretation. It's really the science of literary interpretation. You, there are certain rules by which you study literature, and especially the Bible. One of the, one of the primary the first rules of hermeneutics is the law of first mention. In other words, the first time you see a phrase, it crystallizes the meaning. And every time you read that phrase after that, you've got to take into consideration the first mention. Because it gives you the first idea or the lens through which it it may be elaborated upon. But that first mention is crystallizing the meaning of that word. The first time we see this word baptism is in Luke where John says, what I do with water, Jesus is going to do with the Holy Ghost and fire. It's baptism. John baptized into repentance, but he baptized in water. Note that in water into repentance. It was always in a substance, into an internal experience to declare to others and to enter you into this prophetic reality, okay? In and into. That is the the formula of baptism all through Scripture. Again, let's go through our baptism. In John's baptism, in water, into repentance. In Christian baptism, very clear in Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that we who are baptized are baptized into his, not repentance, his death. So, John's baptism, in water, into repentance. Christian baptism, in water, into his death. The baptism in the Holy Spirit We are baptized in the spirit. A lot of people will use that phrase a little sloppily. I was baptized by the spirit. No, you weren't. Jesus baptizes you. John told us, the one coming after me will baptize you in the spirit. The baptizer is Jesus. The substance of your baptism is the the spirit. But what is the into? That's the question. When you're baptized by Jesus in the Spirit, what are you baptized into? That's the question. We'll answer that in a moment. So we have this this, uh, formula all through Scripture. The other thing you must realize about baptism... And we, we intuitively understand this about water baptism, but we fail to understand it about spirit baptism. And because we don't, there's a whole segment of the body of Christ that comes to the wrong conclusion about this. They're good people. I'm not saying, you know, they're, they're good people. They just, because they missed this one point. And the point is this. Baptism is always something that is performed after the fact. What do I mean by that? We do not believe in, because the Bible does not teach, what is called baptismal regeneration. Baptism does not save you. 1 Peter chapter 4, I want to say it is, talks about baptism saving us by cleansing us from a guilty conscience. It's not talking about salvation in the sense of, Uh, translating you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His Son. It's talking about cleansing your conscience. Why? Because it's it's, it's a way to register the fact in your mind, okay, I am going to have an event in my life, a marker that I can look back on and say, I buried that old man, that the things I did can no longer chase me into my present. I don't have to feel guilty about the profane Th- sickening, embarrassing things that I did before I met Jesus because they're in the grave. I don't worry about those things because I can look back and say, in 1983, Del Lombard at the Open Bible Church on Euclid put me under the watery grave and that old man was left there and I came up free from those things. That man is buried. I am crucified with Christ, yet I live. Not yet, not I, but Christ lives in me. That's my boast, Paul said. I don't, I, don't, I don't have to identify with those things anymore. And so we live in that reality. Baptism is not only a, an announcement to others, it's a, real, a prophetic act that I can embrace and say, no, I remember, I remember the funeral. I remember that morning. But that's only half of it. I'm supposed to come up in newness of life. I'm not just saying goodbye to the old man. I'm being given the new man. I'm going to come in. I'm not only saying bye to the man who was imprisoned by sin. I am coming up and I'm supposed to come up like Jesus in the power of the spirit. I not only said goodbye to the man that was a prisoner. I'm now being empowered to live the righteous life. And that's what I'm supposed to do. So we don't believe that you baptize someone to get them saved. You only baptize someone that is saved. And even John did that. Remember where, where the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, some of the Roman soldiers came to John the baptizer, and they said, hey, baptize us. He said, you whitewashed sepulchers. He, he wasn't, didn't have real good social skills. But he said, you whitewashed sepulchers, you brood of vipers. That's how he started his sermon. You brood of vipers. He said, go and bring forth works of repentance, and then I'll baptize you in it. In other words, let me see the reality and then I'll seal the deal. Baptism seals the deal, okay? But he he wasn't gonna baptize you to create repentance. It already had to be a reality. And the same is true of our salvation. We don't baptize people to get them saved. We baptize them because they're saved. We don't baptize people to bury them. We're gonna kill you through baptism. I've heard of a guy one time, he, he heard some teaching and he showed up for the baptismal with a scuba suit. He said, I'm afraid the pastor's gonna hold me under too long. It's a true story. We don't baptize people to kill the old man. The old man is dead. We're just celebrating the fact. Baptism is something after the fact. Why is that important to understand? Because the same is true of spirit baptism. Now let's look at First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, and we got two minutes. Oh Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 12, verse 13. Well, let's look at verse 12. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And though all of its parts are many, they form one body. You're a knuckle, I'm an earlobe, together we make a body. So it is with Christ. And here's the verse, verse 13. For we were all baptized, my translator, I'm reading the NIV, says by, and there's a little B by it. And then you follow that B down, and it tells you the Greek word there is, it's pronounced N, but when you transliterate, when you write it, it looks like EV, EV. It looks like a cursive E and a V. And it can mean by, in, with, into. It's the context that determines what it means. So one of the things we got to do is we've got to let ter- Scripture interpret Scripture. And so if we look at whenever this word baptism is used, we see that there's a baptism in and a baptism into. So we take that and we look at this verse and we realize this is baptized in the Spirit into one body. Now, there's different, different scholars will argue about this and there's a big debate, but I'm just telling you that that's what it means, okay? Trust me, I'm your pastor. For we are all baptized... In one spirit, into one body. To be consistent with the rest of scripture, it's in, into. We all agree on that? Okay, just pretend. Whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we are all given one spirit to drink. Here's what it says. Listen to this. I'm going to back this up so I don't fall off the platform. He says, you're baptized in water, into repentance. You're baptized in water, into Christ's death. We are baptized in the Spirit into the body of Christ. You see, we're, baptized, we're always baptized in a substance into an experience. In a substance into an experience. In water into repentance. In water into Christ's death. In the Spirit as the substance. But the body of Christ is the experience. Why is this important? If you look at the context of this Scripture... The context is spiritual gifts and the body of Christ, that there are many members and you don't get the body without hooking up with some. I can't use that term anymore. I'm sorry. It's I'm an old school guy. That didn't mean what it means today. You can't get in the body. You can't have the fullness of Christ unless you connect with other believers. You've got to have relationship with other believers and then you begin to see the fullness and then you begin to utilize your gift. Your gift is largely irrelevant when you're alone. Let me say it again. Your gift is largely irrelevant when you're alone. You were and so here's the deal. Paul said this is one baptism. From his perspective he's saying listen, it's all one package deal. You repent, You go down in the water, you have your watery grave, you come up, and the Spirit comes upon you. You went down in death, and you come up in resurrection life. The Spirit comes upon you, so that you now live for the body. Before you got saved, you lived for you. Now that you are baptized, you live for the we. You live for the body of Christ. And the best you is the you that lives for the we. Because God has put stuff in you. He's pounded it in your DNA. But it'll never be called out unless you're relating with the we. And so it's so important. I'm going to tell you. The power of God that came at Pentecost was what kicked the church off. That what made the church the church was the baptism in the Spirit. And it was the love of God that melted us down and welded us together. And if we, don't, if we don't break into that aspect, we have fallen short of what God intends. Let me close with this. And maybe we can elaborate this on this next week. There are three... Primary manifestations of the Spirit coming upon you in your life. Wisdom, power, and love. The New Testament talks about all three as as the Spirit of God coming upon you. We as Pentecostals. Well, those of us who were raised as old-line Pentecostals, I'm not talking about the New Wave Charismatics, I'm not talking about the Third Wave Vineyard Movement, and the Revival Movement, I'm, talking about, I'm talking about the old-time Pentecostals, of which I'm not old-time, don't, don't correct me, I'm not old-time, but I am, I'm on that line. We emphasize the power of God, and I love the power of God, but we need to be careful that we don't let go and fail to, for, fail to cultivate these other two, wisdom and love. And I would say to you, the most foundational and the most crucial, the greatest of these is love. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a baptism in the love of God. And it's that which makes us the body of Christ Because all of a sudden we come up and we look at each other with different eyes. It's the love of God through us. And we begin to see one another through the eyes of God. And we have a deep affection for one another to bear one another's burdens, to meet one another's needs. And it's a baptism of love. It's the love of God that melts our heart when we realize how much he loves us. And the second stage of that thing is all of a sudden I can't help but love him back. It's the love of God with me as the object of his affection. But then it's the love of God with him as the object of my affection that flows directly out of that first stage. But third stage love, when love matures, it's the love of God I begin to pick up his affection for others and I begin to relate with them through his eyes. And that welds us together and makes us the body of Christ. We can sum it up with this. If we are a spirit-filled church, then people should say, oh my goodness, they love one another. And if we don't, we aren't. We are not spirit-filled. You've been listening to a presentation from Heartland Church in Ankeny, Iowa. For more information about our ministry and its available resources, visit us on the web at heartlandchurchonline.com. Thanks for listening.